The historian David Waldstreicher has published The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley, A Poet's Journey Through American Slavery and Independence. It's a superb new biography offering the fullest account to date of Phyllis Wheatley's life and works. Seized in West Africa and forced into slavery as a child, Wheatley became a noted poet at a young age. She's considered the first African-American author to publish a book of poetry and had a lasting influence on the founding generation and generations to come. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In this episode, I'm joined by David Waldstreicher and the historian Nancy Eisenberg. We'll discuss Wheatley's life, the development of her poetry, her influence on the Constitution, and much more. David Waldstreicher is a distinguished professor of history, American studies, and Africana studies at the CUNY Graduate Center. In addition to his recent book, The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley, he's the author of many other books and articles on slavery, the founders, and more. David, it's an honor to welcome you to We the People. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Nancy Eisenberg is T. Harry Williams Professor of American History at Louisiana State University. She's the author of several wonderful books, including the New York Times bestseller, White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America, as well as wonderful biographies of the founders, including Aaron Burr, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and John Quincy Adams. Her first book, Sex and Citizenship in Antebellum America, focused on the early women's rights movements. Nancy, it's wonderful to welcome you back to We the People. Well, thanks for inviting me. David, your book is pathbreaking. You cast such illuminating light on Wheatley's cultural, political, religious, and poetic significance. Uh, let's begin by telling We the People listeners who Wheatley was and what her poetic legacy is. Well, the first thing to know about Phyllis Wheatley is how young she was when she was enslaved and came on a slave ship to Boston. She uh, entered the family, was purchased by John Wheatley and Susanna Wheatley, and within a few years, learned English, learned how to read was writing poems that started to get attention from neighbors and people in Boston. And within a couple of years, she is writing occasional poetry and religious poetry that is making her quite well known around town. And then uh, in 1770, when uh, the evangelist George Whitfield dies and she writes the uh, most republished and most notable poem reprinted in London about his death. And a couple of years later in, in 1773, she publishes a book of poems for which she's best known. So she becomes, in effect, the most famous person of African descent in North America and Europe at a time when the question of slavery its rightness, its wrongness, who's to blame for it, how it might be changing or not changing, is newly controversial and becomes inseparable from the controversy over the empire and the place of the North American and Caribbean colonies in the British Empire. 
So she really is uh, a poet of the age of revolution and helps make the issues of slavery and the issues of liberty inseparable and mutually reinforcing in many different ways that I explore in, in tracking her life from the 1760s to her untimely death in 1784. You explore them so powerfully and you show how the debates about liberty and slavery, that trope that was invoked by the colonists to rebel against Britain, um, cut in very complicated ways. There were anti-slavery arguments for and against on, among both loyalists and Whigs, and the politics were constantly shifting in ways that were reflected in, in, in Wheatley's poetry. N Nancy Eisenberg, maybe introduce us to that debate about liberty and slavery. It, it was indeed the slogan of the revolution. How did the colonists deal with the hypocrisy of the fact that many of them were enslavers at the same time that they were demanding liberty from Britain? Well, I, I think that what we forget is that the idea of liberty and slavery was a kind of rhetorical convention. Um, but it, of course, took English critics <laughs> uh, to point out that, you know, as they said, the slavers were yelping about their liberty um, at the same time that they were in, enslaving uh, men and women and children. Um, and that's the other thing that I think is kind of really striking about David's book is he's writing about childhood, which is something we kind of skip over in biographies. And we tend to forget how much, even in Boston, the exploitation of children as laborers was, was commonplace. I mean, most of the indentured servants uh, who went to New England were children. Um, and then you have the story of Benjamin Franklin and his apprenticeship. Um, so this, this kind of idea of a child and how in integral that was to slavery, because as we know, the work of Kathy Brown has shown that slavery itself was defined in Virginia if you were a slave born of a slave woman. Um, and that's, you know, something that we, we tend to forget about in our past. We forget about how central childhood was to the institution of slavery. Um, so that added to the larger debate about the revolution. Um, and David does a good job of quoting Benjamin Rush, who's very well known, Pennsylvania, <laughs> revolutionary, signer of the Declaration of Independence, promoter of female education. Um, and he's one of the people who popularized Phyllis. And, you know, David quotes how basically he ended up saying, using her as a symbol of anti-slavery, he even referred to as an honor to her sex and to humanity at large. Um, and then later, everyone discovers she's not free yet. <laughs> and that's another thing that, that David kind of highlights um, that I think is really striking, because I think not only is it central to the revolution, but I was thinking after rereading David's book recently, I kept thinking about how, um, you know, American and genius is not acknowledged until the English crown you. Uh, that's true of Washington Irving. That's true of Frederick Douglass. That's true of Ida B. Wells. So the fact that Phyllis, you know, ends up having to make a trip to London and be received by, and, and it just seems ironic in the middle of the revolution that this still carried weight, but it does. Um, and I think that's another interesting feature when we try to think of childhood. Is she a prodigy? Is she a genius? How do we talk about that? And in democracies, we don't really like to talk about genius. 
um, because that can be associated with an aristocracy. Um, so it has this kind of negative connotation. Like, who do we allow to be geniuses? Is, I think, a, a question his book raises that touches on gender, race, and class. It's so true about that central role of genius and also the unique role of childhood. I was struck, David, by your noting that during the time of Wheatley's enslavement, a full third of the captives from Senegambia were children, according to their European buyer's definition. Um, let, let's take up this question of the debate about liberty and slavery in Wheatley's poems. And you describe an evolution in her poem to the Earl of Dartmouth, you note that instead of political restrictions seeming akin to enslavement, instead of tyranny being like slavery, she reverses the equation and says slavery is wrong because it's like the tyranny that participants in the debates of 1772 have been hearing much about. And then later on, her, her, on, on further reflection, she talks about slavery being a kind of uh, enslavement to the passions and emotions and invokes classical moral philosophers to say the truly free person is he or she who's overcome his passions or emotions, and that uh, slavery is a matter of the freedom of the mind. Tell us about that debate and how it's reflected in Wheatley's poetry. We tend to think that uh, the question of whether slavery was right or wrong was a, a simple matter, that people either believed in human rights, believed that slavery was wrong, or they were old-fashioned, not modern, and didn't believe that. Or they believed that it was okay for certain groups of people who were seen as inferior. And historians like Gordon Wood sometimes buy into or even further this simplicity because they don't want to deal with the complicated debates of the time, of the late 18th century, of the revolutionary era about what slavery was and what was happening and what was where it was, who was doing it. And uh, it's almost as if there's a desire, on the, especially on the part of those who like to celebrate the founders, to see the issue as more simple than it was for them. And the fact is, it's only for us that it's a morally simple issue. For them, it was a complicated issue. And it wasn't complicated just because there was a lot of economic interests in slavery. It was complicated because it wasn't exactly clear what the hell slavery was, where and what it had been in the Bible, what it had been for the Greeks and Romans, what it was in other empires. Nancy made a reference uh, now to Kathy Brown's work, which um, so much underlined how much work it took to make sure that slavery was going to be hereditary through the mother in North America. It wasn't obvious that that's what the law would be and that, that reproduction would be the technology that would make slavery hereditary, which would mean in the long run that you didn't have to keep importing the same number of people from Africa or elsewhere every generation. But in human history, slavery has not always been hereditary and it's not always been one ethnic group or racially defined group. And Wheatley, by uh, both from her experience, I think, in West Africa, which we know so little about, but we but there's a good chance that she saw slave systems in more than one place in West Africa, and that she learned other things about the way it was working in the New World, and became a voracious reader of both neoclassical Greek and Roman literature and Hebrew Bible and New Testament, and the English literature uh, spun out of that. She knows that slavery not only is the opposite of liberty in the abstract, she also knows that it's not at all clear what happens to slaves. In Homer's Odyssey, good slaves become free 
and um, Odysseus himself is at risk of being enslaved. And this is something that can happen to, to anybody. And so it isn't just a question of right or wrong. It's, it's, it's highly contingent and uh, it depends. And so that's what she is dealing with. So what you see in her, in the way she deals with slavery directly and obliquely over the course of years, is you see her basically trying out religious, secular, literary, political ways of talking about this question, whether to start with, if you're a literary genius, does that mean if you're a slave, you're going to, that, that you deserve to become free? Are you different than other slaves? Uh, and one thing she, she realizes, I think, quite early is that racial justifications for slavery are on the rise precisely because Christians and um, people who are in favor of liberty are saying so many bad things about slavery that sl advocates of, of slavery are on the defensive and they are reaching for the racial justifications more and more. And that's what Benjamin Rush is talking against when he says, well, she's a genius and she proves that Africans aren't inferior. And Wheatley, and Wheatley is dealing with this, this rise of racial justifications. And so she attacks it from all these different angles in a range of ways and, and quite conscious that even though she knows everyone is perceiving her racially, that sometimes it's a good idea to not talk about that directly and try to foment some doubt about whether she and people like her um, ought to be enslaved or, or simply will be enslaved permanently. And that's the major project that she's engaged in. And that's why she has uh, a very, um, subtle and complicated and changing relationship to all these cultural traditions and all these political uh, debates that she's uh, drawing on and engaging with. And if, you, and if you see what she does, when she does it, in response to whom, you start to see a pattern of deliberate engagement and careful engagement that, I, that hasn't always uh, been apparent because people are always looking for, oh, what's her attitude about Christianity? What's her attitude about race? What's her attitude about slavery? It's much more what is she doing in this particular poem at this moment in response to what in order to uh, be seen, get attention, and perhaps free herself and others? Absolutely. You show that so powerfully. And of course, she's always responding to the politics of the moment and is unable to be a strong loyalist or a strong patriot at a time when it's not obvious how the revolution's going to go. And all of that is reflected in her poems. Uh, Nancy Eisenberg, of course, the most notorious racialized critic of Wheatley is Thomas Jefferson. And in his notes on the state of Virginia, he infamously said, religion indeed has produced a Phyllis Watley, as he put it, but it could not produce a poet. The compositions published under her name are below the dignity of criticism and insisting that Black people can't write good poetry because they're racially inferior. Jefferson shows a, a racism far more virulent than that of many of his contemporaries. You, you've written so powerfully about Jefferson. Tell us about what he says about Wheatley and what that says about Jefferson. Well, Jefferson even goes to great lengths to argue how, like, Roman slavery was different. You know, like the, the argument that David mentioned, that somehow if you could be free at the end, that slavery wasn't a permanent condition— um, and, you know, Jefferson, you know, resorts to, you know, he thinks of himself as an, you know, the 18th century version of a scientist. Um, so, you know, his theories, you know, predate, but very much are similar to the kind of, you know, sociobiology and the racist theories that become even more prevalent in the 19th century about kind of measuring 
basic traits and sort of giving them race-specific meaning. Um, so from, from Jefferson's point of view, even though he does strange things like he imagined he could, uh, you know, have his slaves learn how to be farmers on their own by having them, you know, live side by side, in, imported German immigrants, <laughs> uh, you know, as if they were going to teach them how to uh, be independent and free. Um, so, you know, Jefferson's theories are, if you, you know, look at the notes on the state of Virginia, he too, it's like what David is saying, he's trying to kind of rationalize certain things, work out certain things, barring from certain prevalent theories. I mean, he bends over backwards to try to prove that the new world wasn't inferior because the old rulers assumed that our environment uh, produced small animals and Native Americans were inferior. And then he had to bend over backwards to prove that that wasn't true. Um, but he, he really is in the foreground of laying forth these arguments in defense of race. And he's, I mean, I actually believe he's dismissive of Phyllis Wheatley also because she's a woman. It's the combination there because he has no real respect <laughs> uh, for, you know, uh, uh, women's intellect. Um, and he sort of was suspicious of that as well. Um, and I think that's the thing, if we, if we get back to the law, one of the big issues in the room is that under, you know, Blackstone's common law was the idea that in the household, there's a very clear hierarchy between masters and servants, mas you know, husbands and wives, parents and children. You know, this was the, the social order that would be preserved. And we as Americans adopt everything about the common law. Um, so there, there's that need for stability and order. This is where conservatives theory always is rested in. And I think another interesting thing about David's book is, you know, the way in which the revolution brought forward, you know, he has uh, Phyllis Wheatley's important line of her poetry, sometimes by simile, a victory is won. And there's all these metaphors about taking down the monarchy, challenging the family metaphors. But at the end, which family metaphors do we want to maintain? And this is something that I think also raises questions. I mean, her identity is about race, it's about servitude, it's about slavery, it's about gender. Um, and I think, as David's right, I mean, these ideas are in the air and she's aware of these things and she is kind of negotiating and trying to engage in these larger debates. And that's, I think, that David's earlier point is really important, is that we have to kind of understand people in the past in real time and not assume that their ideas are set in stone, you know, from the moment they speak <laughs> from their first treatise. And that's kind of what's interesting about reading of her development, her change, the way her arguments respond to, you know, what, what's going on at the moment. And that means you have to appreciate that 18th century people are not always like us. And they talk in a different way and they think in a different way. And I think that's kind of what's, you know, fascinating, uh, particularly when you, David spends a great deal of time looking at her words, the importance of words, you know, like the word sable. Why does she use that word? I mean, it's really, I think, it's certainly something important to poetry because they think about words. But I think that, you know, trying to figure out the words you choose is very much thinking about your audience and, and how you engage, get your audience to pay attention 
and listen to you when you're talking about something controversial, which is what she was doing. You're so right about uh, how David brings out her meticulous choice of words and how uh, often she's writing in a coded way based on the audiences and, and messages that she's able to express. David, we've talked about how, how Rush hailed her as a genius and Jefferson, in a racist way, dismissed her as inferior. You also talk about the general uh, skepticism that she needed to overcome. Tell about the famous examination that Professor Henry Louis Gates called the trials of uh, Phyllis Wheatley, where she was asked to prove that she wrote her own poetry. You, you, you show that it wasn't actually a trial. And also the other instances where she was forced to show she could write her own stuff, like the moment when Thomas Woolridge, the British merchant, asked her to write a poem on the spot, and she uh, was able to do that with dramatic effect. So, so how, how, how did she prove her legitimacy in this, in this uh, racist and skeptical world? So probably the, the scene or the thing that many people find most vivid about Wheatley's life, and um, Henry Louis Gates made it the uh, beginning of his Jefferson lecture at the Library of Congress, which became his little book, The Trials of Phyllis Wheatley, where trials is a metaphor for um, what she experienced under white scrutiny as an artist, and then later on at the hands of African-American literary critics and artists, uh, especially in the 20th century, who some of whom felt that she wasn't radical or race conscious enough. So um, that's what trials means for Gates. And it's such a potent metaphor for what she experienced for Gates that he inflates this this, um, story that had been told in a, a young adult novelized biography by Shirley Graham, uh, which had started out as a radio play, uh, this this I, this story that uh, she told, where um, all the dignitaries of Boston meet to decide whether or not Phyllis Wheatley has actually written the poems that she says she has, and that uh, that the Wheatleys say she has, and so they grill her, they put her under an examination, and Gates makes it sound like it's a really like a, a PhD oral examination. He actually uses uses that uh, makes makes that actual comparison, which is hilarious to us academics um, <laughs> that uh, that he would project in that in that manner. But so um, it's really literary license that never happened. Why why do we know it didn't happen? Well, not only is there no proof that they that these guys who later signed uh, uh, this attestation that appears um, at the beginning of her book that she actually wrote the poems not only is there no proof that they actually gathered in a room but she knew most of them she had written poems about members of their family they're signing a piece of paper that can travel to england to prove that she wrote the poems before she goes to england to get the poems published so it's uh it just it's not it's not an actual event what it is is it's a publishing strategy it's basically promotional material that they have signed so i try to switch things up a little bit and say okay but actually there is a dramatic scene uh where she has to perform that she wrote her poems but it's something that happens earlier and sets the stage for her to go to england and that is when thomas woldridge who is uh, a merchant and a colonial official in west florida who's um traveling around and he goes to see wheatley and he later writes a letter to his patron lord dartmouth says i went to see this young woman who's so amazing and i asked her to write a poem she said come back the next morning and she gives me this poem that's uh, to Lord Dartmouth. I argue that actually 
she probably was working on this poem already because she knows very well that Lord Dartmouth has just uh, been reappointed to be Secretary of State for the Colonies. He's a major British politician who's just come back into power. He's known as being relatively friendly to the colonists at a, at a time when the controversies over taxes are heating up once again. And he's also well known for being a pious Methodist and um, religious. So she's written celebratory poems about political figures to the king, thanking him for in the repeal of the Stamp Act. She's all primed. She, knows, she probably knows all about Lord Dartmouth. People in Boston are talking about, oh, this is great. Lord Dartmouth's on our side. She's ready to do this. She's been writing. She's been trying to set herself up to get her poems published. And when somebody comes along who's bragging about his relationship to Lord Dartmouth, she's ready for him. So it's actually not a story about her. The story of her, her performances in Boston are not just about her under the white gaze or being put under this extreme stress. It's also about her seizing opportunities and projecting herself into a space where she's in conversation with colonial officials. And what could be more being part of the American Revolution than getting the attention of Lord Dartmouth and then having an audience with him? She's not just famous. She's famous in a way as as a colonial uh, and talking to people who actually have power over the colonists and who are making decisions about these issues that may have implications for the future of slavery, such as can the colonies make their own laws about slavery, um, which Lord Mansfield in the Somerset case had just called into question. So uh, th to me, that that's the other, the um, real primal scene. Oh, and I'll just throw in one more thing, which J.L. Bell discovered and which I elaborated on, which is that it's pretty clear that it's probably that she later writes a poem that's, that's almost certainly to Thomas Wooldridge's wife, Susanna Kelly Wooldridge, who's... Um, family is American and, and has American ties. And so probably she's the one who get who is the connection that gets Wooldridge to come visit. He doesn't talk about her in his letter to Dartmouth, and there's nothing unusual about that. My wife said that I should do this. He's not going to do that. He's saying, I had this great idea to do something you would like, because he's trying to get patronage. This is Wooldridge. But there's a, there's, a, there's a woman, another woman. So many of Wheatley's opportunities get developed out of ties to white women in the colonies. And uh, for example, Countess Huntingdon, uh, who is the patron of George Whitfield and is also a close friend of Lord Dartmouth. So um, making opportunities out of relationships with women in Boston and elsewhere is, is central to her story. Uh, and um, that can easily be erased when we stress how it ends up with her in the company of powerful men like Jefferson and Washington and, um, and Lord Dartmouth and Benjamin Franklin. Just amazing scenes that you uh, reconstruct, uh, all these opportunities from women, many of whom are called Susanna, as you uh, describe, and uh, uh, just a, a, a riveting uh, description of, of seizing the moment. It's almost like Hamilton writing his famous letter on the hurricane. She, she, she had her poem to Dartmouth in her back pocket and was able to produce it on, de on demand, and it, it made her name. Uh, Nancy Eisenberg, um, uh, David Wallstriker says that Phyllis Wheatley was the only black person to elicit personal responses from the likes of Lord Dartmouth, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, as well as Jefferson. And she became a political actor as well as an artist and a celebrity. George Washington was far more respectful in his reception of Phyllis Wheatley and uh, paid tribute to her genius, although he timed his responses, David says, for the moment that it was most likely to enlist the loyalty of black troops. Can you characterize broadly how the very different 
reception of, of different founding fathers toward Wheatley shows the complexity of views about race at the time. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that David is very sensitive to is, is the idea of timing and the, the consciousness of the, of the public audience that you're trying to reach and the awareness of, I mean, we, we have this fantasy about the founders, you know, as being geniuses and, you know, every other day they have something brilliant to say. But no, they're very, I mean, scholars have written about, you know, the Republic of Letters, the awareness of what your audience is, who you're trying to convince and persuade. We know very well that Jefferson wrote every letter. This is something that Andrew Burstein has written about. Every letter was written so it would be received by the individual he's writing to in a favorable fashion. So they are deeply aware of their audience and deeply aware. And this is what Washington is known as his mastery for, is cultivating his image. And as we tend to forget, all this idea of uh, playing the courtier, playing in a way that is appealing to the standards, the elite standards of the time, we think of that, okay, okay, that's English, that's that's aristocratic, We've, we abandoned that. But no, this is something that Washington that, you know, led to his, the reason behind him being president and him having this kind of international reputation and an awareness of that. And I think that this is with, with Jefferson, you know, Jefferson had a very different identity. He, he really conceived himself as this intellectual. Um, he wasn't very good speaking off the cuff. And he liked to kind of write careful treatises and arguments. He is the supreme letter writer. But I, I think that what David's showing us is that meaning is created <laughs> and that the founders are not these spontaneous individuals. They are very, even because we think of it as being a kind of more uh, kind of primitive environment in the 18th century. But some of these ideas are very similar today. I mean, because one of the things I think is so fascinating about Phyllis Wheatley is the whole culture of celebrity. And now we think of that as a very modern phenomena, but it is not. <laughs> you know, the idea of the artist and the, every artist needs a patron. You can't kind of operate in this world. And this is something that even Jefferson understood. He took young men under his wing, like James Monroe, William Wirt, cultivated and opened doors for them. And, and as David's written about Benjamin Franklin, when he was on his rise, we think, oh, the self-made man, he did it all on his own. No, he's on the search for patrons. Um, so no one can act completely independent. And I think that the way Phyllis Wheatley cultivates powerful women, and David is adding that to the debate, the way in which these net personal networks, personal networks, family networks, kinship, and, and in Boston, they're obsessed with that, by the way. Um, but the importance of connection um, as, as a means for creating the moment, creating the timing of when you can be seen as, you know, a publicly important figure. Um, you know, and what David's trying to show is that, you know, Phyllis just wasn't the pawn. She's not just being manipulated by these people. She's a part of the process, a process that, you know, she's very young in doing this, but she's also, this is something young people grew up very quickly <laughs> in the 18th century. Um, and I think that that, that awareness, it, it forces us to think about how the founders existed in that environment as well. They, they have more, com they're not just individuals. They have complex relationships. 
family relationships. These people can have power too. Private power matters. But they're also very aware of how, of shaping their public image. Um, and celebrity, I think, is kind of really what's unique and another interesting part of the story of, of Phyllis Wheatley. So true. How many of the characters that David describes were acutely conscious of image uh, drumming up publicity and how patronage was so central to all of their success. Uh, David, of course, one of Phyllis Wheatley's important patronesses was the uh, Countess of Huntington. They were united by their devotion to George Whitfield, the preacher, and religious themes were central to Wheatley's early poetry, especially beginning with On Virtue. And so many of her early patrons were ministers. You note that uh, seven of the people who attested to her genius in 1773 were preachers. Talk about the religious theme in her poetry and how it was central to her reception. Early on in some of Wheatley's first poems, uh, you can see her understanding something that women in New England had understood for a long time, which was that even though the role of the minister in congregationalism was unquestionably male, women in various ways could be powerful figures in religious life and could guide their churches, could guide the fate of the minister in any one congregation. And uh, their testimony about themselves and about others, religious testimony and religious words, uh, was a place where they could uh, exercise autonomy. Now, I'm not suggesting that there was any cynicism to this at all. I'm saying that this is the culture. And if we think of Wheatley as someone who was coming from uh, a West African culture in which women speaking, women praising men, uh, praising authority figures, they had uh, scholars of oral traditions and poetry and song in West Africa uh, say this again and again, that women have distinct roles in praising authorities and in mourning. So then she gets to New England and she gets to this culture where poets and women can play these roles. So it helps explain why it is that early on she's writing these elegies for for ministers uh, and elegies when people die. And as Wendy Raphael Roberts has, has said so well in her in her fantastic book, Awakening Verse, there is a ministerial role that poets have, which uh, is expressed, for example, in the popularity of hymns and writers of hymns like Isaac Watts in the 18th century. And this is one of the roles that Wheatley was inhabiting. And you can see her playing, like be, being the arbiter of questions about what kind of mourning is appropriate. Uh, what does God really want us to do? Um, how great was a certain person who died and why? And what are, the, what are the implications for what we ought to do in the world to fulfill the legacy of that political or religious uh, or patriarch or matriarch uh, who, or, or child who has, who has passed away? So uh, it's sometimes been, and, and already some people have criticized me for not emphasizing it. It's, it's always, the thing about dealing with religion in early America is that there are always people who aren't interested in it, and there are always people who want it to be the, the whole story, who, who think it's, oh, well, the, well, they were more religious back then, and that's the, only, the most important thing you need to know. I think uh, Wheatley's perspective on religion is that it's, it's 
just one among many things. It's not the only thing that's going on. And the interesting thing is how she relates it to other uh, things. So that when she when she starts to talk about the hypocrisy of the Americans on slavery, which she does, for example, in a letter to her friend Obor Tanner, in a way that's mo- that's more overt and direct in early 1776 than than most of the, than what she said in her poems, she makes it a religious critique. She does that partly because Obor is even more pious than she is, but she also does it because that is the way to make it stick. It's a universal argument that. Um, these modern Egyptians are are hypocrites, and and God uh, works in mysterious ways, and who knows whether they may pay for their national sins. So, whose national sins is she talking about? She might be talking about the British national sins of oppressing the Americans. She might be talking about the American sins of uh, oppressing the Africans, or both at the same time. So, religion is always there, but it's not an all or nothing thing. It's an idiom. It's a la- it's a, another language that she is working with. And it's, and the fact that she owns it so well, uh, makes her able to speak to people in ways that, um, sometimes enable them to hear what she has to say, uh, in ways that they otherwise might not. So it's central and it's a, it's a grounding for her, but, um, we can also see her, um, branching out and combining it with other idioms and uh that that would be the sort of a story about her artistic and personal development that i think is that i think is important the power of your book shows those different strains the religious strain the anti-slavery strain and the, and the neoclassical strain is all parts of her legacy and you note that that letter to obor tanner that you mentioned where she so explicitly denounces slavery as a violation of natural rights hadn't been discovered uh until the late 20th century, which is one reason, as you note, that African-American critics in the early 20th century described her as insufficiently race conscious and said she had too much distance from the reality of slavery and the experience of most people. And even W.E.B. Du Bois found her verse trite and halting, although he changed his mind, as you note, by 1941. Um, Nancy Eisenberg just described the, the shifting reception of Phyllis Wheatley and the fact that for for much of the 20th century until until recently, she was insufficiently appreciated by, by African-Americans as well as by white critics for that reason. Yeah, I think one of the problems that modern America has is with neoclassicalism. <laughs> you know, they, we're, not, we're not well-versed in, you know, Pope's poetry and that whole tradition. It's I mean, and part of it is this this idea I mentioned before about the kind of the, the the taint of elitism, the fact that, you know, getting into college was only for young boys and you had to know Latin and Greek. Um, and that whole, you know, this is the thing that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams love, you know, writing about their knowledge of Greek. Um, but it, it's, it does seem very unnatural to us to read neoclassical poetry. Be, but it's a really misunderstanding of the 18th century because it's not like, I think we associate it with like cold statues, you know, something that's so formalism, it's formalism. And we we like to think of Poetry Day as something natural and spontaneous and closer to the heart. And that, you know, it's like Jefferson's head heart, like neoclassicism <laughs> is with the head. And I think this is, this, is, this is one of those barriers. It's very hard to overcome because of our own perceptions of what we think poetry should be, like this natural expression um, versus the formalism. Um, and I think that's what people have had problems. And I think this is what, you know, David's book overcomes because you can't, 
by not putting her into one box, by seeing how these different discourses are connected to one another. Um, and that poetry, I mean, I think it's even recovering the poetic voice, poetry is something, I mean, when I was, when I was rereading your book, I kept thinking about, you know, today, a lot of our most famous modern poets aren't writing poetry, they're writing music lyrics. Um, and, <laughs> and that's where we get, you know, again, we see them as geniuses, but that's where we get the power of poetry. And David mentioned hymn writing, which is a religious tradition. But if we think about poetry, it is something that um, has this long tradition in different cultures, the importance of music, the importance of rhyming verses. Um, but I think that we have to, with, with you know, recovering Phyllis Wheatley, we have to not kind of see her work as cold and formal. Or, and that's what, you know, and it feeds Thomas Jefferson's attack when he calls her just being, you know, imitating. Um, well, we all imitate. <laughs> I mean, it's like nobody's purely original. You don't kind of like, not like Venus, where you just kind of emerge and somehow you're original and everything you say is new. But it's about the combination, the more interesting combinations. And that's where I think, you know, David's book is really, you know, recovering uh, that tradition. I mean, one of the things he mentioned in his book that I thought was so interesting is, you know, the, the sculptor Edmonia Lewis, you know, who did this statue of Phyllis Wheatley for the, the Chicago World's Fair, and it was part of the women's building. And her background is also really fascinating because she was Native American as well as being African-American. But she was also very conscious of her image. She claimed that she grew up in the wilds <laughs> and kind of flaunted this natural, unique. And it was all made up because she had she like excelled in school and kind of, you know, had all the traditional uh, successes. And she, her brother made a fortune in the gold rush and she had wealth and privilege. But it's, again, that tension where, I mean, this is my critique of America. Americans often want the myth. <laughs> the overblown, the image that suits our needs at the moment, um, rather than trying to really figure out that most people, in, when we go back into history, have complicated lives and they, you know, are interesting when you kind of accept the complexity instead of kind of trying to stick them into one box. And I think part of the reason for the 20th century is that when you have a symbol, you, you're trying to kind of, it's a political agenda to have a symbol, someone who represents your movement. And, you know, symbols change. And what people want out of symbols uh, is, is not necessarily always what reflects the historical record. And that's where we kind of need to return and appreciate the historical context and not lose sight of that in the case of Phyllis Wheatley. And I think that's what David's book allows us to do. He does indeed so powerfully. David, talk about her legacy as a neoclassical poet, which which is so central. And I'll share, if I may, my new book, uh, which will be out next year, is On the Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Influenced So Many of the Founders and Defined America. And I was so struck by how many of them would read these classical writers on virtue, Seneca and Epictetus and Aurelius, and write sonnets of virtue, Hamilton, uh, John Quincy Adams, uh, uh, Mercy Otis Warren, are among the founders who, like Phyllis Wheatley, wrote 
classical sonnets of virtue after reading this literature. I, oddly, I found myself doing the same thing. And before I knew that they had done this, I sort of summed up the, the wisdom in little sonnets as well. So there's something about the literature that lends itself to this form, but it's central to, to Wheatley's legacy. Tell us about her significance as a neoclassical poet. There are two things that um, aren't really sufficiently appreciated about um, about poetry and neoclassical poetry in the 18th century and why, and that help explain why she did what she did the way she did it. One is that one is that poetry is is popular culture. It's almost as if you take all the popular music that we take for granted is at the center of popular culture today, move it over into print, move it over into what we consider poetry and no longer read or find too formal because we prefer free verse now because we find it more expressive and easier to write and easier to read. Move all that, move all that rhyming stuff that we still like. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people uh, in my lifetime, because I've always been interested in this question uh, as a one-time aspiring college poet uh, and, and my mother wrote poetry um, that, uh, and my mother wrote poetry that rhymed. And, you know, people would say, oh, I hate that rhyming stuff that I had to memorize in school. Same, the very same people love pop music. Right. And they don't, they don't look down on the, the, the musicians who write songs that rhyme. They, you know, they think it's catchy. They like it better. Right. So these things split, but they weren't split in the 18th century. Poetry was popular culture. It was newsy. It was occasional, but it was also religious and it was also the highest art. And this is where the Greek and Romans come in with their aesthetic theories and with their the, the best that has been thought and said, passed down all these years. And maybe you have to maybe to really appreciate it, you have to learn Greek and Roman. But you don't because it's all been translated. And it's not just been translated in prose. It's been translated by the best English poets trying to do English equivalents. That's what Alexander Pope is about. That's what makes him a bestseller and famous and kind of a rock star is these English verse versions of the Odyssey and the Iliad. So it doesn't matter whether Phyllis Wheatley knew Greek or Latin. In fact, it's better that she didn't because it's really the translations that she's riffing on and modeling herself on. So when I started to realize this and I started to try to read everything that she would have read and known about to try to get at what she was doing at a certain point. And so Phyllis Wheatley gave me my classical, the classical education I never, I never had, even though I was an English major uh, in, in college. At a certain point in listening to books on tape of the Iliad and, the, uh, and especially the Odyssey, I realized like, wait a minute, slavery is all over this literature. They talk about it all the time and especially the traffic in women. So if Phyllis Wheatley has an experience as a trafficked person and nobody wants to hear about her experience and her sorrows and the loss of her parents and what, what horrors she may have seen uh, before and after the voyage at the bottom of a ship or more likely uh, not at the bottom of a ship because women and children were let, let on deck. But in any case, how can she get at a world with slaves and enslaved women and um, voyages this, this literature is not foreign to her. It actually is talking about things. This Mediterranean world is like her Atlantic world. It's analogous. So she would have she wouldn't have been repelled from it. It's foreign. It's too elite. She would have been drawn to it. And I think that the way that she incorporates it and is able to show off her knowledge and understanding of it and riff on it 
really uh, needs to be seen in that light, that she could use this stuff to talk about things that she couldn't talk about directly. And I think that that has to be the starting point, just as much as her conversion to Christianity and her discovery of forms like the elegy and and talking to and about ministers. So that's how I see the the importance of neoclassical poetry, and and which are basically like you, you can't even separate the neoclassical from poetry for for uh, people in the 18th century. And so back to reference what Nancy said earlier about words. Um, it's it, it's very interesting that we um, uh, we're so uh, concerned with what the word choices of the founding fathers were in their legal and uh, philosophical writings that explain their attitudes and their political their political thought and their the, the constitution that we have to follow to the letter. But um, it's very it's very interesting that the grounding the figuring out of how to use words uh, uh, that that so many of these men do uh, was shaped by their interactions with this poetry. So that you know, when we when we talk about the founders and the classics, uh, I think you're exactly right. We shouldn't just we should we well yeah Seneca of course fine you know. Uh, um, the um, Aristotle, Plato, all these, all the um, uh, the historians, Livy for John Adams, uh, all those things, but also the also the poets, and that's part of why Wheatley was so threatening to Jefferson because I think he recognizes as like, oh, oh wow, she really is, she's really there, she's really there. I can't just like brush this off. So I'll say she's a religious poet, so I don't have to admit that she's a classical one. Oh, completely. You so powerfully capture the excitement and pop culture significance of, of poetry at the time. You, you describe how the, the Earl of Dartmouth pays for Wheatley to buy 18 volumes of Pope's work, and then and she reads it on the ship, and that's just the most exciting thing that she could read. And also, that's, you just said so well that through the neoclassical idiom, she was able to express messages that she couldn't otherwise express directly. And that the subtlety of that vehicle that allows her to take moral, political, and religious positions that, that she can't openly at a, at a time where the shifting politics are perilous is one incredible contribution of your book. Nancy, maybe some thoughts on that as we begin to wrap up this wonderful discussion about how Wheatley's poetry suggests how malleable the politics were between loyalists and patriots, between anti-slavery advocates and defenders of slavery and how Wheatley had to navigate these these shoals, which she did so subtly through her remarkable poetry. You know, this is again the story we, we don't often don't like to raise, but the fact that the you know British would end up liberating more slaves at the end of the war than any Americans would. <laughs> um, so it's also navigating that tension that. Uh, and not necessarily for higher or noble reasons, but it was also kind of considered a war strategy. It was also, uh, David talks about Lord Dunmore, who kind of issued a declaration in Virginia saying anyone who's an indentured servant or a slave wants to be free. If they come to the British side, they will essentially have their freedom, um, which, you know, again, turned the Virginians patriots, you know, uh, basically, I think it's Henry Lee who says, well, we better liberate them first before the... <laughs> The British do. Um, so it, 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 it is. I think the, the, the loyalists, you know, always get a bad rap. They're always seen as the, you know, the elitists, which they weren't any more elite. I mean, there was a whole range of different kinds of loyalists, um, which, is, you know, historians have begun to appreciate. Uh, they came from different ranks, class ranks. Um, but there's, there's I, I, I think one of the things to think about there were people who became loyalists who were like, you know, essentially 
had the same critique of the, the British government um, and, you know, end up, you know, moving to Canada or, you know, going to Australia and taking their American ideas with them. Um, so loyalists are, are a mixed bag. And I think there are, you know, we draw this kind of rigid line between the two, but they do share, they share, again, the same kind of political heritage, um, their British heritage. And that's the other tension, the, the revolutionaries. Uh, yes, they're claiming to begin anew and, you know, invoking this American identity, but in many ways, they remain very British, <laughs> not just with the common law. So they can't quite escape, you know, the British models, whether it's the law, whether it's culture. As I said, like, you know, the English are still the ones who have taste, supposedly, and get to decide which American writers deserve to be recognized. Um, but yeah, I think we have to kind of avoid that tendency of thinking that first of all, that the revolution was set. Like, but you know, when we look back in time, that somehow there were clear divisions between the loyalists and the patriots in terms of their culture, or we find one category, like we use class in a way to kind of imagine that they were, you know, completely different groups. Um, and I think we also have to realize that, you know, Americans are drawing on this British culture, this British tradition, this neoclassical tradition. Um, in a way that continues to define things. And there are ways Americans want to kind of break and show they're different. Um, but in many ways, I mean, I keep thinking about, you know, John Adams' love of Cicero. I mean, he just can't get enough of Cicero. <laughs> um, and I think it comes back to that idea when David was talking about how Phyllis is living through the Odyssey, that whole idea of analogy, I think the reading process, people could, when they were reading about these people, they had no sense, they didn't mind imitating or reliving, you know, like the, the life of Cicero, where that was kind of considered noble. Um, and I think it's not until the romantic poets that we really get the emphasis on originality and that everything has to be new. And it's not new, but, you know, the insistence, you know, that it's new, that contributes to that I think, misunderstanding of how important the classics, neoclassicism was to the founding generation. And for, you know, men and women, as, as, as David highlights that these translations, I mean, I always love the fact that, you know, John and Abigail are constantly, you know, quoting Shakespeare to one another, and they don't even have to cite it. I mean, they, they know it backwards and forwards, and they know you know, they. If you read their letters, they're. You know, we think of letters as, as if someone's saying exactly what they think at that moment, but they are very much filtering it through their read, their books, and what they've read, and storylines and quotes that are like a stepping stone to the bigger theme, the, the emotional theme or the political theme that they want to get at. So it is this kind of hidden language to us today, but it wasn't hidden to them in the 18th century. The love of the founders for the classics is so palpable. You're so right about Adams and Cicero. And in fact, I was so struck by the fact that Jefferson, Franklin, John Adams, and John Quincy Adams all cited a single book of Cicero as the source of their understanding of the pursuit of happiness, namely the Tusculan Disputations. I can't wait to hear what both of you uh, think about the Pursuit of Happiness book and would love to have you back to discuss it when it's out. Um, David, last word in this great discussion to you. I, I, a trust that we, the people listeners, are 
excited enough by our conversation to to read your superb book. Uh, but why don't we send them out with just a few closing thoughts on your part? Maybe I'll ask the obvious question. What did you learn about Phyllis Wheatley at the end of this amazing project that you hadn't known at the beginning? Oh, so much. Um, I think I'll emphasize something that um, touches on the last question about about the loyalists and about the about the revolutionary conflict, which is that Wheatley is, um, for all her uh, singularity and distinctiveness as a celebrity and as a, as a famous enslaved person, she is actually typical in many ways of the Black experience of the American Revolution in the way that she hedges her bets, keeps lines of communication open with Tories and patriots, with people on the other side of the water and people in Boston. And in doing so, uh, even though uh, patriots kept her at arm's length and uh, didn't want to, she couldn't get her book published in Boston, so she has to go to England. But out of that back and forth, and that dance she has with Franklin and Washington, who um, neither quite want to embrace her, but can't be seen publicly to be dissing her either, because she's already famous and she's in their spheres. So they um, engage her, but like kind of hedge their bets about what she means, and so that they don't have to have it mean something about uh, about what about the future of slavery. She does that with them, leading patriots. She does it with, um, with the British uh, over in England. And the result is that uh, in hedging her bets, it, that is part of the process by which she gets emancipated because her being a slave is embarrassing to her owners. The, uh, her friends in England are throw it in the faces of uh, Benjamin Rush's surprise to find out that she's still enslaved. And uh, it's ambiguous exactly how it happens. And I think she keeps it quiet. Uh, and she says different things about it to different people precisely because she's playing different people against each other. And the results is she becomes free. But like a lot of African-Americans who become free as a result of the war or as a result of how some people are starting to think slavery is wrong or as a result of their own efforts to find a way to become free, whether running away or negotiating or getting liberated by, by British forces, what that means for the future is unclear. She doesn't know what's going to happen, what the results are going to be. In her case, she's one of many for whom uh, freedom turns out to be uh, the loss of patronage and um, ve very difficult to establish a life in freedom. We don't know whether her young death has more to do with uh, what seems to have been a chronic illness, which there are earlier references to, or the fact that her husband was in debtor's prison and that she uh, had several young children and the economy is in a shambles in Boston in 1783 and 84. And all these uh, probably are all factors in what happened to her. But um, there's, uh, I, I try to leave it as open as I can uh, because I don't have a clear answer whether we should see her, the end of her life. How important is the fact that, that she comes to a tragic end is she just another early romantic poet who dies in a garret because there are no careers for poets? Poetry is popular, but that doesn't mean that like the, there are going to be royalties for her, even if she's famous. But she's not the only one. She's actually typical in that regard, too. So uh, it's um, she's actually, even, even though she's very unusual, she's a great example of the open-endedness 
of the American Revolution, the way it's going in both anti-slavery and pro-slavery directions, and that has that has a tremendous impact on all African Americans uh, in that time. And um, it's also maybe a useful way for us to, uh, given the the um, debate we now have on whether the revolution itself was pro-slavery or anti-slavery or uh, liberatory or more uh, more of a more of a colonizing and racist juggernaut. Uh, maybe uh, the open-endedness and the f- way that things are going in multiple directions at the same time that we see with her uh, maybe provide us uh, a, a way out of uh, what is maybe becoming a, a stale or or um, too stark debate between everything having everything being good or everything being bad in how we think about the founding. The open-endedness is indeed a liberation from those stale categories, and that is one of the many contributions of your path-breaking book, The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley. Thank you so much, David Wallstreicher, for joining us. Thank you, Nancy Eisenberg, for being such a, a great interlocutor. And thanks to We the People listeners for tuning in. Please check out David's book. It's marvelous. David, Nancy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Samson Mastashari. It was engineered by Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Yara Durese, Lana Ulrich, Samson Mastashari, Thomas Vallejo, Connor Rust, and Rosemary Lee. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And always remember, whether you wake or whether you sleep, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the devotion to lifelong learning about the Constitution of people like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission. Support it by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount, $5, $10 or more, to support our work, including the podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.